0: I'm Ray Johnston and you're listening to Take It Black. This episode we're observing Black History Month, which is more of a US initiative, but there are parallels and similarities of experience right here at home. And joining me is my co-host, Jack Lattimore. G'day, Ray. How are you? Good. How are you? I'm pretty good. Uh, You're right. It's Black History
1: Month. Uh, This is an initiative that goes back to around the mid to late 1920s in the U.S. Uh, It's an annual celebration of achievements by uh, African-Americans, a time for recognising their central role, or the central role of black people in U.S. history. And it's a bit similar to what we do with NADOC Week here. Uh, It's about, we have a week of celebration that raises greater awareness of Indigenous achievements and all of the issues that we keep uh, facing and continue to try to overcome uh, Black History Month obviously is a month um, and their theme this year is um, African-Americans and, and the vote. So a very timely topical uh, theme as the US barrels towards a presidential election on the first Tuesday of November later this year. Uh, in the era of social media, there's been international participation of this Black, uh, Black History Month um it's sort of seeped out around the globe and people of color uh, around the place are are all sort of joining in and celebrating um there's parallels between our history our mobs history and afro american uh, experience and our mobs have also uh, identified in some ways with the black american culture for some time Uh, if you look back at The early 1900s, 1910s, 1920s, with Jack Johnson, the uh, famous uh, first African-American world heavyweight boxing champion. He beat Tommy Burns in Sydney on Boxing Day 1908. Um, Around that time, there was a lot of political mobilisation on uh, the waterfront. John Maynard, an Aboriginal historian, has written a fair bit about that, Uh, the establishment of the Coloured Progressive Association, uh, which sub- subscribed to the sorts of critical activism of Marcus and Anne Garvey, who were Afro-American, uh, that, that influenced the rise of Aboriginal political activism in the 1920s in Australia. Uh, later on, not too far uh, after that, you had Paul Robeson, um, Faith Bandler, uh, met with him, he ex- uh, he got involved, uh, took a, a great interest in Aboriginal uh, political activism. Then, of course, we look at the 19 late 1960s and throughout the 70s with the Black Panther movement. Uh, that obviously we took uh, model from uh, the US, and more recently that's continued with the Black Lives Matter international movement. Um, then you look at Black critical race theorists like Roxane Gay, who NITV's Rachel Hocking interviewed in April last year, Angela Davis, Audre Lord, bell hooks, um, right across to the, you know our enthusiasm for hip hop music culture, and uh, of course we've seen with the Black Panther Marvel movie, uh, huge interest in just around all the excitement that was generated there, which, incidentally, Roxanne Gay was a writer for that comic, one of the first two black women to write uh, for a Marvel series. So, yeah, we see all of these parallels uh, with Afro-American black history um, and similarities in issues as well, like incarceration, racial profiling... Uh, just truth-telling and recognition of history, all that sort of stuff, right?
0: Yeah, and we are going to dive into all of that in a moment. Uh, But first, I wanted to thank all of our listeners for the amazing response we had to our first episode, which was all about January 26th. It's a big day for all of us, so it was really great to see so many of you sharing and joining in on the conversation online. A big thank you to you all.
1: Yeah, it was absolutely massive uh, right across that few days. Um, We had, on the Friday, our first episode of Take It Black launched, uh, and then it just seemed to pick up. You and I hosted The Vigil on Saturday night.
0: We did. Big numbers watched, they tell us. Yeah, like 200,000 people were watching on Facebook. It was so good. That's frightening. (laughs) What were they watching, Ray? They were watching us, Jack. They were watching us. (laughs)
1: Like like Guri Box. Forget Google Box, it was Guri Box.
0: (laughs) We're going to get that off the ground, I swear. (laughs) But yeah, uh, it, it, it re- really was a big week. We had the vigil, there was the, the, the sunrise ceremony on the Sunday, and you know, all the rallies in Yarbon and we had the news from all over the country.
1: Yeah, we had hourly news bulletins that kept you busy all through yeah. January 26th. Uh, our coros uh, reporting back from the rallies and the morning ceremonies. Yeah, I was pretty exhausted by the end of it.
0: Yeah, but everyone tuning in and watching, you know, that, that's why we do it. it. It means so much to know that, you know, we were able to provide all of that for you and you got a bit of an insight into what was happening across the country. Just a quiet way to to kick off a new project with the Take It Black podcast right at the beginning of the busiest weekend of the year. So thank you for all of your support. But now moving into this episode, I want to introduce our next two guests. They travelled to the US southern state of Alabama where they spoke with Brian Stevenson, who is a lawyer and a social justice activist, and he's actually responsible for saving the lives of over 160 people facing the death penalty. Just Mercy is a film that's out in cinemas now about his life, and it's based on his best-selling book of the same name.
2: Take it Black. Tell me everything that happened. first time I visited death row I wasn't expecting to meet somebody the same age as me from a neighborhood just like ours could have been me mama but what you're doing is gonna make a lot of people upset you always taught me to fight for the people who need the help most well I am a human rights attorney I represent the poor and the accused and the incarcerated and the condemned and I believe that each of us is more than the worst thing we've ever done that if someone tells a lie, that they're not just a liar. If someone takes something, they're not just a thief. I think even if you kill someone, you're not just a killer. And justice requires that we know the other things you are. And so my work has been challenging mass incarceration and excessive punishment, and also confronting um, the long history of racial injustice, racial inequality. I think we still have, in the United States, a criminal justice system that treats you better if you're rich and guilty than if you're poor and innocent. Wealth, not culpability, shapes outcomes, and that's not fair, that's not right, that's not just. And we have to create institutions that can bridge the gap, and I think we have thousands of people in our jails and prisons who are innocent of the crimes for which they've been convicted and tens of thousands who have been unfairly and wrongly sentenced. Take it black
1: that was brian stevenson thanks brian now we're going to talk with nitv legend and host of sbs's living black carla grant as well as the current affairs producer on living black and the point ross turner in a moment but first ray i watched the brian stevenson episode on sbs demand the other the other week uh, earlier this week um that's generally how i watch all of my television this days these (laughs) days um There's a lot of good stuff on there that NITV puts, just to put a shameless plug out there for our listeners. Uh, But two things struck me about the Living Black episode. Um, There was a great image uh, that looked like a drone or something. It was going across the memorial. uh, That was a memorial to the lynchings um, that have occurred across the US history in the South. Um, And it was just this really striking imagery. Um, And then it there's a bit of a contrast or a comparison uh, that, that Brian Stevenson alludes to between recognising that history, um, this is like really uh, relatively new uh, sort of memorials that have been established, that Brian has established, um, but then sort of holding up how that is done in Germany. Um, and they, he says it himself, that they want people to know about this past, this history. They want people to go to these memorials. Um, That's sort of starting to establish in the US through Brian's work. And it's something that is um, really uh, timely and topical here in Australia as well.
0: Yeah, what really struck me watching the episode was... Brian talking about the assumption of guilt and criminality for black and brown people within the justice system and even within the broader community and that even leading to Brian himself being assumed as the defendant by other people working in the courts. And that prejudice that they're still fighting against over there, you see that mirrored here a lot, that that assumption of guilt and and the fact that we have to fight against that. Uh, If you haven't seen the episode, I highly recommend you jump online and give it a watch. But here to talk more about this story is Carla Grant and Ross Turner. Thank you for joining us. Hey. Hi, hey. Ray. Hi, Jack. Thanks for Hi, having guys. us. Thank you. So I wanted to start by asking how this story came about. How, how did you think to follow well, this?
3: One day I just got this email from uh, Roadshow. Uh, films and they had seen Living Black, they've seen all the um, conversation interviews that I've done and they really like the program and they said, you know, um, this film Just Mercy is coming out about Brian Stevenson, um, would you like to come to Alabama and interview him? for Living Black and I said yeah sure (laughs) as long as you're paying.
0: (laughs) So did it seem like a
3: a natural fit for the program to be talking to someone like Brian? I hadn't heard about Brian Stevenson at all so you know naturally I did my research um, found out all about him and straight away I thought yeah he's someone that we want to have on the show he's someone that will really resonate with our audiences and his story and what he's doing.
0: So what kind of expectations did you have of Brian
3: before you met him and how did they live up in real life? Um, Yeah, I just thought, wow, what an amazing man. He's just incredible, what he's doing. It's just remarkable, Uh, you know, saving the lives of over 160 people on death row already. Um, I just thought, what an incredible man and he's just going to be so amazing to speak to. And he was just that when, when we met him in Alabama um, at the offices of the Equal Justice Initiative that he set up 30 years ago. He was just um, a wonderful man, very yeah very beautiful man, very calm and, and very down to earth. And I imagined him that way. So, yeah, very modest. And it's just incredible what he's doing.
0: He is incredibly committed to this cause, Mm. isn't it? It's it's his
3: whole life. It's his whole life. He's spent his whole life doing this and, uh, you know, defending the rights of the poor, the marginalised, the, you know, disenfranchised. Um, And they're all black people, of course. They're all, you know, um, black Americans who he's defending um, and those who have been wrongly convicted. There's so many, uh, you know, black men sitting on death row and you know who have been wrongly convicted and they're innocent and you know like there's one man who's actually in the movie just mercy um, he was he's been sitting on he was sitting on death row for 30 years and Brian got him out of there so wow. it's just incredible and yeah it's come at a cost to his own life i mean he doesn't doesn't really you know he doesn't he's not married or you know he doesn't have a partner doesn't have children uh, he's just devoted his whole life to to saving the lives of others
0: yeah, and you did see the film when you were over there, yes, Russ. What was it like to see the film and then hear those stories again from Brian himself? Like, did it really strike home the reality Look, of it? It
4: absolutely did. Um, you know, like for me, it was my first time, A, being in America and also B, being part of a big press pack. And so going to a cinema, you know, you know, little minivan kind of coach and then rocking up Going into some cinema with like a fake movie title on it, so no one knew what you're actually seeing, and then you're sitting in there, and then you've got a security guard who's standing there watching you the whole movie. It just seemed very surreal. It seemed very America. But, you know, Brian turned up and he spoke before the film began, which was a surprise to us all. And, you know, as Carla was saying, you got that genuine kind of warmth from him, even though you only had this fleeting kind of meeting with him, and really, wasn't a meeting at all he's just standing down the front talking to an audience full of journos and then you know off he went and you watch the film but as I was flying over there I was preparing um, you know to sort of see well what things could we talk about and I had like numerous TED talks and that kind of stuff to read through or watch through and you know found myself very much blown away by the character of the man and some of the stories that he told in those Ted talks and and the Ted talk that he's done has got like six or seven million views. So it's like, it's not gone unnoticed. And those stories that he was telling in that you would see actually portrayed in the movie, almost word for word. And so it's that, at that point I very much realized, wow, this is a real story. And I think for me having that knowledge in the back of my head, watching this, it hit me probably 10 times harder so naturally you are sitting there watching this going this is a real story, this is a real story about people who really are locked up and they haven't done anything wrong and there just doesn't seem to be any justice at all and yet somehow Brian manages to come in there and save these people from death row and you know like I, I definitely said to like shed a tear during the film it was hard not to, it is a very confronting film but it is an absolutely amazing film that I absolutely recommend people go out and see just to see you know, what is going on in America even today
1: yeah, I'm really keen to see it. I uh, haven't have been able to get to the, the movies. I think it's released out here. But um, what struck me about the interviews itself was he was so gentle. He seemed like such a gently spoken person and very considered and strength behind it. But um, it sort of belied that tenacity of the guy, I guess I'm saying. Yeah. Did you get mm-hmm. that sense?
3: Yeah, he's very, yeah. But very gentle, very calm, very quiet, and you just think, you know, how does this man go in there and fight for the, you know, for the lives of these people? But yeah, he's just got something about him. He's yeah, like I said before, he's devoted his whole life to, to that, and so he sits there in his office with his mountain of you know files piled up next to him, and just reading through everything till he finds something that's like, you know, know yeah, this is inconsistent with what the police reports say. Or, and um, you know, grabs a hold of that, and and you know, you see that through the the story of Walter McMillan, who um, who this film is all it's all about, Brian and his life and his work. But um, the um, you know Walter McMillan is was his first high profile case, um, and you know he you know they had to go to retrial, and um, yeah, there was a, a you know a lot that happened, and you know eventually he got uh, Walter off, but. Um, yeah, you know, yeah, it's, he's an incredible man. I, I
4: think the remarkable thing that I found with Brian as well was, I mean, like he, he is obviously, you know, a reasonably softly spoken guy, but he, he has this great strength of character about him. And, you know, he, his father was murdered and, you know, like over something like a television mm, and, you know, so. no police came to kind of solve that case or anything like that. So here is a man that has started life, you know, with great pain and great difficulty and also seeing a complete lack of justice and, you it, it was very interesting to see how he has taken that on upon himself to then decide, well, I want to help people get justice and to see how that's completely taken over his life and, and drives him with a great passion is it, something quite remarkable.
0: Yeah, and all of this happened, you know, the, the, this interview where you saw the screening... The city itself, it was the birthplace of the civil rights movement. What
3: what did you see? What was your experiences in the city? It was incredible going there because I imagined this, you know, busy, bustling sort of city, you know, Montgomery, Alabama. When we got there, it was just so quiet. It was very, very quiet. It was like Canberra but worse. And so where, where's, where are all the people, where, where, where's the traffic, you know, but um, it was a very quiet place but the people were very warm and friendly and, um, but, yeah, to be there in the birthplace of um, the civil rights movement, um, yeah, it was incredible just walking down the streets. There's lots of signage about different um, areas of the town where certain events took place. We went to the Rosa Parks Museum and we just learnt so much about, you know, what she had you know gone through in her life, and um, you know, bringing an end to the um you know the uh, segregation on on um, buses and um, yeah, the segregation laws and and Martin Luther King had um, um, you know uh, preached at uh, one of the, the church is there as well. We went to visit that. So there's just a lot of history about the place. So the thing that a- I've
4: found with, with the history about the place, I mean, like I'm a history buff, and I guess being a journalist, that kind of makes sense. But, um, mm-hmm. you know, we were there for the 200th anniversary of that city. And, you know, this is, this is like one of the most racist cities in America, let's be real. I mean, the slave trade was heavily through that area. And you know the, the the wharf that was pretty much opposite our hotel was entirely built by slaves. The Capitol building there was entirely built by slaves. But also, this was the seat of power when the Confederacy, you know, took over the Southern states. And so to have this just crazy history of such racism, but also you know a city where huge civil rights you know moments happened in America that changed America, and then to find ourselves in a city which has You know, this massive memorial to lynching, which is one of the biggest draw cards to the city. It just, it, Blew my mind.
0: Yeah, and and what did you see in the you know, the racial diversity and makeup of the of the people that were there? Like, were you noticing that there were a lot of both African American and white people? Or yeah,
4: definitely. I mean, like I, I I jumped on Tinder while I was over there as well, just to sort of see <laughs> should the should makeup. Should you be people saying like that? And, uh, should you be
3: saying that on a national <laughs> podcast? I think it's all right.
4: There's young people out there that use these things too.
3: Who'd you find on Tinder,
4: Ross? Well, it was great. There was a fantastic. So that's mixture what you on were there. doing. Uh, <laughs> Those evenings
0: yeah, I was wondering where you were. Yeah. <laughs> this, is, this is all an insight into journalism and how these
3: stories get put together. Exactly <laughs> right. And I
4: mean, like, there's a story He's doing everything.
3: his research on <laughs> Tinder.
4: <laughs> but the makeup, like, because, like, we were often, like, busy off filming or doing something, so you weren't necessarily around a lot of people within the city. And the tourist district was, let's be real, two blocks. So there's not much to mm. really do there. And, yes, tourist district was definitely, like, you know, Pretty white central,
3: mm, the Hank Williams, uh, like Hank uh, Hank Williams Museum, yeah. and we went in there.
4: And you know. so, so like <laughs> you, you didn't see a huge breakdown there, but once you started to sort of get out to different places or go out to shopping districts, which we did one night, or like Tinder, you see a bit more of a makeup of who's around. Yeah, there's definitely a, a great breakdown of of all different cultures. Lots of African Americans, lots of like young white families. Um, but I think also the fact that there's an Air Force base right there in the middle of the city. Um, you know, you had a good mixture of culture, and I felt that that as a result made it much more accommodating.
0: Yeah, I'd love to hear more about what you saw inside the Legacy Museum with the the letters.
4: Yes, well, um, the Legacy Museum was was more focused heavily on the slave trade, and uh, but it also sort of compared the modern slave slavery in America now, which is incarceration. Um, the, the stats in that were pretty horrifying. I think it was one in three you know, African-American men are in prison in America, uh, which, which you know, is mind-boggling. And of course, you know, within the state of Alabama, you know, one in nine people you know, on death row, in theory, are also innocent. So you're seeing constant heavy stats like this in this museum. There were these letters, though, that was in, in one section talking on this new slavery uh, of inmates that were talking you know, or calling for help. Um, probably the most confronting one or one of the ones that I saw was by a, I think he was a 13-year-old boy and he was in an adult prison and he was calling for compassion. And it was, you know, it was, would have been maybe two A4 pages long and he was calling for compassion multiple times and you knew that he'd already been raped numerous times in his first three days there. And, you know, like, you, you just were in tears in this museum reading these stories that are, you know so publicly on display, and you know are happening in wide parts across the states, and you know, you could you could see the hopelessness of the situation, and to think that places like the Equal Justice Initiative are desperately trying to get in there and help these people, you know, gave you some reassurance, but it was a heavily depressing mm. thing to go through and just reading that.
0: Yeah, it, it feels like it's a it's very open. It's very it seems quite honest of the situation at the time. How do you think Australian museums, memorials to our terrible histories compare to what you saw over there?
3: You don't see that here. You don't see anything like that here at all. No, nothing. That's all swept under the carpet. They have the
1: the Rosa Parks Museum, the Mm. Martin Luther King. um, And, yeah, we just seem to be still... uh, We're well
3: behind the eight ball in that respect. What do
0: you think it would do for the general empathy and compassion of Australian people to be able to see memorials like this for our own struggles and movements over the years?
3: When you see that sort of thing, like we did um, at the Legacy Legacy Museum, those letters, I mean, I read a few and then I just couldn't do it any longer because I just felt so sick inside, just, yeah, reading those letters and and you yeah, know just seeing knowing what those people are going through um yeah it you just um it's very very confronting so i think that something like that is needed here just you know um it it, it really it's yeah it's very confronting but you know if people see you know read those sort of things or know about the past and that's you know a part of all this truth telling i guess um yeah knowing about What's happened? The true history of our of our nation, then there'll, hopefully there'll be more understanding, um, you know, about what's happened in the past and and why things are the way they are now and uh, now and why we are trying to seek change in this country.
0: Yeah, I hope it
3: happens. Mm. Yeah.
1: Likewise. Well, uh, with Ross, I worked with you on an article that you produced coming out of the Living Black uh, Living Black Story, uh, and, and you pointed to the fact that. Um, there are memorial sites in Australia uh, around things, uh, you know, tragic events uh, like at Waterloo, um, the Waterloo Massacre. Uh, other uh, Down in South Australia, there's another. Um, there's one up in Northern Territory in Gulf Country, which um, is a bit of a, a monument to some of the terrible history that happened there that itself has been uh, sprayed with shotgun pellets and stuff like that. Um, are they enough for you know the purpose of mem- mem- uh, remembering? Look, our I, don't, past? I don't, I don't,
4: I don't think so at all. Um, it, it's kind of, it's kind of funny. Like you, you've spurred me to think of a conversation I had with my mother recently. Um, you know, my parents are retired and they're doing that classic grey nomad thing of let's go travel around the country. Um, and funnily enough, because of shows like this one with Brian, and because of that article that I wrote, you know, naturally your parents are going to read what you, what you write or you hope. But uh, my mum said to me very clearly, she's like, you know, we've noticed now uh, in our, like, grey nomad-style tours, you start to see a lot of places called Dead Man's Creek or, you know, Black Guy's Creek or, you know, Massacre Site and, like, just random little names like that. And they've started noticing, hang on, there is a lot of, like, terrible names and terrible places across the country that just have, like, a flippant kind of name to it. And But because of the kind of shows that we do here at NITV, like you are starting to see people go, oh, hang on a second. This isn't just a flippant thing. This is a real thing. And this is a terrible part of our past here. So I think like my my mum's terminology was, I think the grey nomads as they start to travel will start to, you know, learn more. But they're not going to really learn more unless they actually are actively trying. And so I do think we need to have, you know, a bigger memorial or a national memorial to something like the Frontier Wars because the fact that we don't have anything like that in this country, I found pretty shocking. And and certainly having been in the Legacy Museum and then seen the Lynching Museum, you know, that was, that was full on. And I just found myself going, why does Australia not have something like this? It's time we had it.
0: And is that kind of the overall feeling that you're left with, that we need to establish something similar here? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah,
3: definitely. Yeah, yeah. Yeah.
0: All right. So in terms of changing that narrative in Australia, and obviously you can build a museum and point out these things that have happened, but what can we learn from what the US has done with that kind of truth-telling and that kind of exposure of its past here?
4: Well, in, in, in terms of the article that I wrote, like I, I spoke to a, a few academics that have done different things in this space. And, and one of the things that had sat front front of my mind while being inside the Legacy Museum, using an interactive map of the United States where you could zoom in onto different states and different counties and you could see where the lynchings were and they were all highlighted in red. And, you know, you'd have one where 100 people were killed on one day for no reason whatsoever and you could read a little bit of history there. And I was aware of the Masker Maps project from, again, a story that I'd done with Jack and, and you know, got to interview John Maynard about that. And I started finding myself going, well, you know, this is great. There's something like this exists. The Guardian, you know, did a whole thing on the Masker Map project. And, you know, you could go and, you know, online and move around and see different things there. But for me, it was being physically able to be in a room surrounded by all this other different history, different narratives and, you know, touch screens and zoom in on stuff that started to make things hit home that little bit more. And I just found that at the end of the day, you know, to change this narrative, you've got to get more people involved. You've got to have a place that you can go to. And so the National Memorial for Peace and Justice, which is, you know, essentially the big lynching museum there in the States, well, that only opened mid-2018 and they had half a million visitors in one calendar year. And, like, if you think about it, these are people turning up to a sombre place to recognise the wrongs of the past and there's a huge appetite for that because Mm. at the end of the day it comes down to I think people's identity as well and certainly identity is something that people are always trying to look into and search more for because people want to know their history people want to know even the terrible history that may have come you know from members of their family and a lot of people tend to want to make amends for that and I think you know building a museum you know, is is one thing, but it's the conversations that come from that. And you can definitely get a good national conversation from that. So
0: obviously this story and the way it ended up was potentially not exactly what you expected going into it. Uh, I feel a sense that you've walked away with a, a little more than you anticipated.
3: Is that right? Um, Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, it's really touched my heart, I think, yeah, and really opened my eyes to, um, you know, to the history of of, um, America and, you know, I I obviously knew a little bit about the history but going over there really opened my eyes. I learnt a lot more about it and the fact that, um, you know, we have similarities. There are similarities between you know the history of America and the the history of Australia there needs to be we need to change the narrative that's what they're trying to do there and and that's what Brian is is trying to achieve um by you know setting up the legacy museum and the national um memorial for peace and justice and you know we're trying to do that as here as well to change that narrative um you know to ensure that the true history of our nation is told and and recognized and and known and taught in schools and um, yeah, so it's, yeah, really, yeah, really learned a lot from it. Well, thank you so much for joining us for this chat. I really
0: appreciate it. Thank you. Carla, thank Ross, you. thank you. And thanks, Jack, as well. It's been another fantastic episode with you.
1: It has, and it's gone very, very quickly. It has. Um, I seem to have lost track of time. I was just <laughs> getting a cup of tea and sorting, uh, sorting myself out for another 15 minutes. Um, But, no, thank you, Ross, and thank you, Carla, for coming on Take It Black, our second episode. Uh, Next week, or next fortnight, um, we're hoping to bring you, again, something relevant. Something topical. <laughs> uh, what that well, I is, certainly hope so. we don't know at the moment. No,
0: we absolutely do. But keep tuning in, subscribe, join in the conversation online. Use the hashtag TakeItBlack. If there's a story that you've seen that NITV's done that you'd like to know a little bit more about, you'd like us to, to dig a little deeper and, and chat to our people, let us know. Uh, and I will see you next time.
1: See you, and thank you for joining us. Oh, I love Oh, I love Oh, I love